Psalm 115. God's word says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. And he will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of men, the dead. Do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Amen. May God bless his reading of his own word to us all this morning. Let's just briefly pray as we ask for his guidance and help. Lord, we thank you for the privilege and the gift of having your word with us and among us this morning. And Lord, we simply pray that right now your spirit would help us to both speak and to hear your word. And Lord, we ask that your word would do its work in us according to the way that you know is perfectly good for each one of us. And so Lord, we pray that your word be mighty and a powerful, accomplishing all your purposes in this congregation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the writers of the very early confessions, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, who's heard of that? You King's Grace people should have. We're in no doubt about the priority of God in all things. In one of the first questions they pose about God, what is God? They answer, God hath, I love that old word, all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory for them. The accompanying catechism that came with it was written at the same time as the confession about 1642 asked this question, what is man's, or we'd say, what is mankind's 
chief end? How many of you know the answer? To glorify God and to enjoy Him. Somebody asks you why you're a Christian, that's all you need to say. I glorify God and I enjoy Him. Well, that is the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 115. That is the heart of the psalmist toward God. And so he says, not to us, but to your name be glory. Well, why should God be glorified? Well, where do we start an answer to that question? One old writer, a guy called Thomas Watson, again, if you can get hold of his books, read them. Do people still read books? I got given a book for Christmas and I wasn't quite sure what to do with it at first. But he gives at least 17 significant reasons from Scripture as to why God should be blessed, praised, worshipped, glorified. Well, we're not going to do 17 this morning. For in this psalm, the psalm writer gives at least two main big reasons why God, why he will glorify God and praise him. And I want us to have a look at those very quickly as we study the text, and then we'll come and try to apply that to us today. So if you could follow me first, very, very beginning of the psalm, not to us, O Lord. First, for God, for who God is, we are to give glory to God and praise and honor to God for what? He is glory. He is all perfection. He is all powerful. He is all wise. He is all good. He is all just, and so on. One writer says that the glory of God, it's what we, big word, intrinsic, or it is essential to the Godhead. And so when we talk about giving glory to God, we're talking about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the glory of God is essential to the Godhead as light is to the sun. The sun wouldn't be sun if it remained dark during the daytime, would it? would be something else. And this state of perfection, this glory of God that is essential to his being is his alone. God gives many things to his people in particular. But glory, perfection, is his alone. Isaiah 42 verse 8 tells us, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. But the second main theme of the psalm is this. For the psalmist, the glory of God is not separated or isolated from his creation. And in particular, it is not separated, it is not apart from his people. <clears throat> Isaiah 43 reminds us, Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, 
whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. And so the psalmist in this psalm calls for God to be glorified in him and in his people because of the relationship that God has with him and with his people. Well, what does this relationship look like? What is what are the parts or elements of this relationship that cause the psalmist to glorify God? Well, let's have a look. Sorry, we'll go to the text now. First, he says, God's love. <coughs> he says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory because of your love and faithfulness. The glory of God in all his perfection of being and character means that the psalmist is loved by God. He defines it as a, the ESV calls it a steadfast love. That is the idea of a love that is unmovable. It's like, it's like the picture of a rock that, you know, you just can't shake. You can't pick it up and put it somewhere else. It is a forever love, an eternal love. It is not a, a, a love till the end, for there is no end to this love that God has for his people. The word faithful brings up the idea of a covenant. <clears throat> I don't know if you're familiar with that word. That is, it is a determination by God to love his people. A, a determination that comes out of the very heart and the will and the perfection or the glory of God. And of course, that covenant, that love is signified in time in the Old Testament by the blood of animals and then sealed, of course, in the new covenant era in the blood of Christ. And so because of this, the psalmist recognizes that God because of his glory, will never unlove them. God does not have, you know, some great big Facebook page up in the sky where if you do something naughty, where his people go off the rails a bit, he defriends them and he cuts them off and he doesn't want to see them anymore. He doesn't want any relationship uh, with them. Well, what about the psalmist when he's under pressure? What about when he's under attack from, as he defines in the, in the psalm, his enemies? Well, this, this psalm actually is thought to have been written at a time when Israel is experiencing a time of hurt brought about by those who oppose their worship of God and all they stand for. And so far as they are concerned or the enemy is concerned, the apparent vulnerability or weakness of Israel shows that their God is not real. That Israel's God is no God at all. And so he quotes them, Why do the nations say, Where is their God? Well, what is the psalmist to do when he's under pressure? What is the person of God to do when their very, when, when their very relationship with God is under question. Well, the psalmist, the psalmist is in no doubt his thoughts, his heart, his attention is back to God with a deep and profound clarity. God, 
God loves me. Therefore, he deserves my glory. His response is very striking, isn't it? Rather than falling into deep despondency or discouragement or despair, rather than looking at the things that he might lose, his power, his reputation, his wealth, or the plans that he may have had, that they may no longer be fulfilled, he only sees in the place of those things the perfection of his relationship, of God's abiding commitment to him and his people. The second reason the psalmist glorifies God is, I could say God's salvation, but let's, let's make it a little bigger than that. God's rescue and protection of his people. And this is found on verses 2 all the way down to verse 11, just trying to summarize the main idea. To the psalmist, God's glory means God sovereignly saving and then keeping or sustaining his people. Without his help, without his um, saving them, without his keeping them, without his help and without his care, they are helpless and defenseless. Three times he states in verses 9 to 11, God is his help and God is his shield. And the implication is that with his greatness in these in help and in his sovereignty, no one can harm him. The God of the heavens comes to the aid of and rescues those he loves. What the gods of the other nations cannot do, he can do and will do for his people. And no doubt the thoughts of the exile out of Egypt are very much to the fore of the psalmist's mind as he writes these words. God graciously brought about their deliverance from Egypt. Without his help, we know the story. They would not have made it, humanly speaking. Well, who is dependent on God? Sort of a sub-question. The first group, he says, is Israel. Let Israel trust in the Lord. In other words, the covenant people of God. The people who have been entrusted with the promises of God, or we would say with the gospel of God, they must trust in the Lord for his help to defend them, to guide them, to provide for them. The house of Aaron, this represents the we would say the religious leaders, even those who work in, if you like, in the church, in the spiritual things, those who should be examples to the others, they too must trust in God. Then he says, a third uh, group of people, you who fear the Lord, that is perhaps just a comprehensive idea of just all those of both Jew, uh, sorry, both Israelite and non-Israelite who have faith in God. All of them are to trust in the Lord. They are all to give glory to God through their trust in Him. We'll come back to that point later. Well, why is this assurance so clear and so strong? Well, let's go back to verse 2. The nations ask Israel, where is your God? Well, Israel's response is clear. Our God resides in heavenly places. That is, he is eternal. He is not confined by time 
and space. And because he is not constrained by time and space and material things, he is sovereign. And because he is sovereign, he will do whatever he wills. And that phrase, he will do whatever he pleases, whatever he wills, does not mean that God is kind of like us. We just wake up in the morning and think, oh yeah, I feel like doing this today. Or I don't feel like doing this today. He's not driven by moods or emotions. No. This statement, I believe, takes into context the confidence, again, of people like the psalmist, the covenant people who, who know and believe that God will do whatever he wills for his glory. And when God does whatever he does for his glory, that always includes the good of his people. God's glory means his people always receive good. And in this case, the psalmist get, recognizes that good as God's saving and God's protection. We remember perhaps Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love him. In contrast, verses 4 to 8, he he points or he looks at the gods of the other nations. He says, your gods are nothing but pieces of wood or gold or silver. It's you who made them. They're not eternal. But they're dumb, he says. They have, you put eyes on them, but they, they can't see. You've made them ears, but they're deaf. You've given them noses, they can't smell. You've put a, you, you, you have um, put hands on them, but they cannot feel and feet but he says they cannot take one step. And the implication is that those who trust in those gods are as foolish as the gods are themselves. Psalm 96 verse 4 reminds us, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And this point of God's saving and God's protection of his people also comes with an implied warning in this part as well. Failure to glorify God, the God of Israel, the God of promise. Failure to acknowledge him as worthy of praise, of worship, of glory, makes one vulnerable to his sovereign will. To put one's security, one's faith in the stuff of this world instead of the true God, is a rejection of God. And I'm sure we can remember Romans chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul there tells what happens when people fail to glorify God. Failure to glorify God, we would say, is the ultimate sin and brings in the end the wrath and the judgment of God. Well, thirdly and finally out of the text, the psalmist glorifies God, verses 12 to 15, for the grace of God. Well, what is God's grace? Well, God's grace simply is God's unaffected, free and lavish giving. And that is the God of the psalmist. God loves to bless. It's five times mentioned in these verses. The God who the psalmist glories in, he gives and he gives and he gives again. 
And he gives because, well, he loves to give, but also he never forgets to give. Why? Because of his glory. His glory and his nature in him compels him to be always giving. And so, again, in verse 12, inherent in this truth is the idea of God's promise, of God's covenant. And there's sort of a parallel, verse 9 to 11, verses 12 to 13. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless all of those who fear him. Simply put it, something like this. God's grace is not limited to a few holy people or church-going people. Grace is not limited to a nation, nor is it based on ethnicity or cultural or political state. Grace is full, it is free, and it is for all of those who glorify God. Well, what do we do with that? And I'm sorry I had to rush through that. There is so, it's such a, a, so much in that psalm. But what do we do with this? What, how, how do we respond to all of this? <clears throat> well, the first thing is, I think it's very simple. For the psalm writer, the glory of God was his number one priority. Do you believe that from the text? He is very, very passionate about that. He says, not to us, O Lord, not to us. So he preached that negative twice. Lord, I, I, I'm the maybe if this is King David, I don't want any praise and glory. I want to give it to you. You are worthy. You see, the psalm is a call and a reminder of our greatest work or calling on earth, on this planet. And that is to worship and to bless the name of God and His work in us and among us. Back in Chronicles, we read, Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Romans 12, I believe, and you know the verses, Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, or 1 to 3, are reflective of that idea. The great um, preacher of time past, Spurgeon, says that this psalm reminds us of our natural tendency to self-idolatry and to the magnifying of ourselves and to the difficulty, he says, of cleansing our hearts from these self-reflections. What he means is we all love a bit of glory, don't we? We all love a bit of praise and adulation. Is that right? It's, an un, it's perhaps an odd person who doesn't in some way desire to be praised and to be blessed in some way by others or to have their names spoken of well. And I think we live in a day when people really, really are crying out for that. You just have to go onto the social media, don't you? And to see the things that people put up onto their... What have you put up today? Your breakfast? Or your cute baby? You just want everybody to say, Oh, that baby is just the cutest ever. I've never seen a baby so cute. And here's a mum or dad. Go, now there's nothing wrong with that. But a text like this is that reminder. It is a gracious reminder that is worthy as we think we are 
there is a infinitely greater wonder and blessing in giving glory to God. No matter what we attain, it is far, far more beneficial for us to glorify God. John Piper says, from all eternity, the ever-existing, never-becoming, always-perfect God <coughs> has known... <coughs> has known himself and loved what he knows. He has eternally seen his beauty and savored what he sees. His understanding of his own reality is flawless, and his exuberance in enjoying it is infinite. He has no needs, for he has no imperfections. He has no inclinations to evil because he has no deficiencies that could tempt him to do wrong. He is therefore the holiest and happiest being that is or could be can be conceived. And that is where the psalmist is at in this text. To him and for us, God's people, God is to be everything. The Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And John Piper finishes this quote with these words. He says, to share this experience, the experience of knowing and enjoying his glory, is the reason God created the world. You ever think about that? In the hard times? You hear what he's saying there? Creation is a grace with the, supply, with the sublime purpose of knowing glory in God. You see, creation is not a chore that God thought, oh my, I need some people to share my glory. I think I'll, oh, I, I just better do it. Make myself feel better. God delights. God created because he delights in his works, in the works of his being. And in the beginning, we remember it causes God delight as it reflects back to him his glory. And then, of course, there is the crowning glory of creation, humanity. And that includes you and I today here in the beginning of 2018. To bring you and I into the world was not a mistake. Neither was it a bore or a chore for God to do. It was a gift that comes with immense and profound meaning. <clears throat> and that is so that we might know him and experience the best of all there is, and that is God. And you remember at creation, what did he do to that end? What did he do to remind of that purpose? Well, he created that one day, didn't he? That seventh day of rest where his creation was to look back to him and to glorify him and to magnify him and in turn be greatly, greatly blessed. You know, we can easily forget that it, it, to bring glory to God is not, we would think, oh, just a worship thing, but it's also a liberating thing, is it not? For in glorifying God, what do we do? Well, we look up and away from this thing here, this, this broken thing, this thing that is 
filled with unfaithfulness and unworthiness, we look up to that which is perfect, to that which is faithful and true, that which is powerful and that which is full of grace and a love that will not let me go. It means that we go about our lives knowing that what we do is not meaningless. As I work, it's not just for me to put money in the bank and to build a house that one day I'm going to have to leave or they're going to carry me out of in a box and someone else will get it, as Proverbs says. But as I work, as I gain material wealth, money, I know it is for His glory. I, I can bring it back to the Lord, to God. And then these things, wealth, money, relationships, my ambitions, my dreams and plans, they find their full meaning and purpose and richness as I give God the glory. Paul says that even in your eating and drinking, do it with a purpose. And what is that purpose? He says it is for the glory of God, as you have your cup of tea and muffin after the service. Or chocolate cake, I saw. I want some. You know, is it any wonder that in this day and age, in our very modern and secular New Zealand, that people are, we have these mental health issues? We're hearing more and more of it. And I'm thinking, why, why are we hearing so much of this in these days? I've got to be careful what I say, because I know it's a complicated issue. But on this, at least at the very beginning of it, what are we told? What are people told? What are young people told? Well, you're it. You're the main thing. You are the purpose. You have me time. You have me things. You do me ambitions. And then that's it. But you see, deep in the soul of people, people know that that's not it. Yeah, we. I, I um, my son-in-law visited last two weeks ago for Christmas, and he's a strong. You know, young farmer, he was fencer of the year in, in, in the young farmer's competition in the whole of the South Island. And yet he told me, he said, and I heard this on the farming program, two young men in their mid-twenties have taken their own lives. He said they had everything. Everything going for them. Family, farm, money, reputation. And all of a sudden, gone. No, no I'm not saying, I'm not trying to simplify such a, such an issue as that. But does it not, is it not, does it not begin in the place of we are the main thing and that there is nothing else, there is nothing to reflect this life, nothing more profound or greater? You see, what the Bible wants to tell us, what the psalmist is telling us, we were built for glory, in glory, and to give glory, to deny or to suppress that is to starve the very soul of a person. Indeed, uh, challenge us, and uh, you know, I, and I say that needing to think about these things myself. You know, many of our spiritual struggles are because we fail to give glory to God in so many areas of life. We take a hold of these things ourselves. We grip onto themselves. Oh, this is mine. Or I will figure this. I will do this. 
instead of saying, Lord, I offer this in my life, in my ambitions, my hopes. And so today is an ambition, an exhortation for you to make God's glory your goal in 2018, above all other things. Above pleasing your wife, or your husband, or your children, or your pastor, or your work, boss, give glory to God. Give glory to God. And last, secondly, second application is this. And it's very simple what the psalm writer is saying. In your giving glory to God, trust Him. Trust in His giving and His grace. Verse 9. Here is a call to renewal of commitment to glorify God, even when a culture or a world around is saying, you're crazy. When the world around is saying, you're it. It's you that's important. That is the number one thing. When the culture says, where is your God? Look at you Christian people. You're a ragbag bunch of people. You're a bunch of bigots. You don't, have, you don't have any tolerance for anything these days that we believe in. What do people say? This is 2017. Hey, you know, you need to... You guys, uh, I've read so many things in media lately that it's, it's about time Christians sort of came into the 21st century and we caught up with the beliefs and ways of the world around us. Really, they're asking the question, where is your God? Who is your God? Well, the psalmist, if we're to give glory to God, we are to trust, we trust him for the promises of care, of love, and lavish giving. And by the way, the promise of increase in blessing toward the end of the psalm, I believe, is a great encouragement for the church today. You know, we can look at the church and think, gosh, it's not in a very great shape. And in some parts of the world, it's not. But he says, may the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is a promise that God's, God's, God's gospel will go on and will do what he intends it to do. No matter what comes against it or who comes against it. We trust him for what he will do. And we trust, and as we trust, confidence of his blessings is affirmed and confirmed in us. It is said of Abraham in Romans 4, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And what has God promised? That so much glory be given. Well, listen to John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In that great prayer in, Psalm, uh, in John chapter 17, where Jesus prays to the Father, he prays this. He says, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And then he says, you know, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, knowing God is possible through Jesus. And through Jesus, we have the promise of every blessing 
that God has to give. And so the call is to come and to trust in Him, have faith in Him. You see, God brings us to know Him, to see His glory, not because He saw any potential in us or how we might one day make a decision for Him. No, He chose us out of the riches and the lavish glory of His love and grace. Remember what Ephesians 1 says, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And as I've said to people at King's Grace many times, in the giving of Christ, God gives everything, for He is God. There is no more to be gained from God other than the profound and overwhelming outpouring of God's lavish grace in Christ. Big mistake we make in the church today, isn't it? We look for the things, the material things, or the health and all of that, that God gives us as gifts, rather than looking at the greatest gift, the greatest glory that He has given, that is Christ. And I cannot help but think that because of that, the church is greatly weakened as people chase after so many weird and strange things in the church rather than seeing the glory of God in Christ, our gift, and the one who has come so that we can see the glory of God and trust and trust and hope in Him for time and eternity. That is why the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Well, so again today, beginning of 2018, I'm sorry I've gone on a bit too long, but glorify God. Worship Him. Give yourselves wholly for Him. And trust in Him. Trust in Him through His Son. Not a little bit, but wholly and completely. And then know and believe that you will not miss out on anything. You will not go short in this life of what you need. And certainly not in eternity. The psalmist, his call seems urgent. He says, the dead can't do it. It's too late when they put you in a box and in the ground. He does talk about those who will praise forevermore. So he's not saying you won't do it in heaven, but it's an odd person who will do it in heaven. In fact, I might even say it's not possible to be doing it in heaven if it is not done here first on earth. Glorify God. Glorify God. Worship Him and trust Him. 2018, King's Grace and Christ's Sanctuary. Amen. Let's pray.